Father, we give you all the glory that you have given us a firm foundation on which to build our lives. Your servant Paul wrote that there is no other foundation than Jesus Christ. And he himself taught us that when we hear what he teaches us and put it into practice in our lives, that we build our house on the rock and that our house cannot be moved. Lord, as we continue in an attitude of worship, as we study your word this morning, I pray that you would help us in these next minutes to add to our foundation built upon the words of your Son, the truth of the Bible. I pray, God, that our hearts and minds and ears would be open to what you would tell us, that you would use this time to help us understand, grow, and that your truth would take root in our lives so that we can avoid deception, culture, or anything else that would try to draw us away from you. May you be glorified in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. As many of us know, Israel is once again at war. Uh, Linda sent me a thing earlier this week uh, from Pastor Greg Laurie uh, that I thought was really interesting because I didn't know this, but I put it in here and I knew you'd know where it came from, so I had to give credit. Um, that this is the first time they have declared themselves at war since the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Now that's, that's 50 years, right? Did my math right there? So it's been a while, right? Is today Yom Kippur? Oh, so very, oh, I didn't realize that. Emil, remind, 50 years to the day. This has been propagated by an attack from the terrorist group Hamas. We all know about them. We've heard that name before. Um, Against Israel and unfortunately primarily against civilian populations. It's included attacks and incursions from multiple fronts and has included the taking of hostages. Um, On the plus side, if there is one, Israel was quick to respond and has done so vigorously, which is absolutely their right. Um, The United States and multiple other nations have repeatedly and publicly stated their support for Israel. I'm not going to get into that because I'm not political. And we're going to consider a couple scriptures and then we're going to move on. In Zechariah 2.8, the word says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now, the apple of the eye is... The middle part. You ever touch the middle part of your eye? It's pretty sensitive. So going after Israel, pretty touchy topic for God. In Psalm 121, the first four verses, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Beautiful promises. And we claim a lot of these promises for ourselves as followers of Christ. I actually had this discussion. Uh, I don't, we were talking about Hanukkah. 
because uh, you know Christmas is coming up, which also means Hanukkah is coming up, and people always get this idea: well, as Christians, we can't celebrate Hanukkah. We absolutely can celebrate Hanukkah. It's a really cool celebration if you've never learned about it, uh, about a miracle that God did in rededicating the temple after the Maccabean revolt, um, a couple hundred years before Christ. There's nothing unchristian about celebrating Hanukkah um, necessarily. To be honest. The traditions surrounding Hanukkah are actually more biblical than most of the traditions we celebrate surrounding Christmas. Sorry to step on anybody's foot. It's just true. But don't worry. I'm still going to put up a tree and wear an ugly... I found an ugly Christmas sweater at Walmart that has Darth Vader on it. I'm probably going to buy that before Christmas gets here. Right? It's okay. I'm just saying. So we were talking about Hanukkah and, and, and our daughter Lydia. said, but why would we do that? We're not Jewish. I'm like, oh, oh, yes, we are. Did you know that? Did you know we are all technically Jewish? We're all descended from Noah. That's the first point. But as followers of Christ, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Now, we understand that he fulfilled so much of the Old Testament that we don't have to live that way. We now live under the new covenant of grace. But ultimately, a person who receives Christ as Savior is a completed Jew. And I know Quite a few Messianic Jews, people who are Jewish but have received Christ as Savior. And they do some things that are really cool as they celebrate Jewish holidays with a focus on Jesus Christ. How did we get there? So we take some of these promises for ourselves, right? Just like if someone touches Israel, they touch the apple of God's eye. If someone comes after you or I as followers of Christ, they touch the apple of God's eye. Just like he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, we have the same promise, where God has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us, that as we are in the palm of his hand, no one can snatch us out, right? We have similar promises. Unfortunately, there are those today who have this idea that God is done with Israel. It's called replacement theology. I'm not going to go deep into replacement theology because it takes too much time. But replacement theology basically teaches that the church has replaced Israel. That God is done with Israel. He has no future plan for the nation of Israel. That he's going to wipe them off the face of the earth along with all the other nations when he returns. And the church now gets to claim all the promises of Israel. Now, we do get to claim the promises of Israel on a spiritual level. But God is not done with Israel. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I say this then, has God cast away his people, Israel? Certainly not. The New Testament teaches us that God is not done with Israel. If you go back and read Romans 9, 10, 11, or better yet, go listen to our studies on those chapters, you will see very clearly that God has a wonderful plan for Israel. Even as you get up into the book of Revelation, you see that God has a wonderful plan for the nation of Israel. So God is not done with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. Our hope and prayer as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem is that God would complete the nation of Israel by opening their eyes to the truth of their Messiah in Jesus Christ. That all made sense? Did I lose anybody? If I did, you can maybe ask me later. But inevitably... When something happens in the Middle East, people start to ask, is this a sign of the end times? People then always ask when we start talking about signs of the end times, is Jesus coming back soon? The answer to both is yes. 
It is a sign of the end times. Like, just be serious. Look at any newspaper for the last hundred years. Like, everything has been a sign of the end times, especially since Israel returned to the land in 1948. Is Jesus coming back soon? Yes. I will never make a prediction about Jesus' return. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But we are surrounded by many signs of the end times. And as we will see today, we should always live in expectation of Jesus' return. Because whether the trumpet sounds, I actually have this in my notes later, I'm going to say it a couple times, but whether the trumpet sounds or you don't hear the horn on the bus and step off the curb, one way or the other, Jesus is coming back for all of us soon. It's just the truth. Let's get into our text. And I know you may be worried. Wow, a whole chapter on a Sunday morning? Yes. Don't be afraid. Just drink coffee. Chapter 13, verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? We lovingly refer to this as the Olivet Discourse. It is recorded for us in Matthew 24 and 25, actually a bit of an expanded version. Um, I believe it's recorded in Luke, but I don't remember the chapter. So as they're exiting the temple, his disciples go, look at how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus said, one day it's going to be torn down, brick by brick. Why? Because of the Jews' rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. This took place in 70 AD. Right? You can look back on history to when this happened. Uh, Titus, a general in the Roman army, came in. They destroyed Jerusalem when Jerusalem tried to rebel against Rome. And a soldier accidentally lit the temple on fire, so they had to tear it apart to get all the gold out. And from that, the disciples go, okay, well, when is this going to happen? But instead of talking about when the temple would be destroyed, he launches into a teaching on the end times. And so we pick up in verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrow. And I think that's why it's really important that we pay attention to this. Jesus starts with a warning against deception. And then he goes into giving us some of the, time, some of the signs that will show us we're getting close to the end, telling us that this is only the beginning. So quick about deception. Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Satan is a liar. You can go back to John chapter 8. Jesus talks about Satan being a liar. He actually says when he lies, 
He speaks of his own resource because he was a liar from the beginning and he is the father of lies. So every time you hear a lie, the resource is satanic. Every time you tell one, the resource is satanic. Oh, that hurt. I know. Love to say that I've never told a lie. But that would be a lie. And that would be a problem in and of its own. So he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by who? Right? Some are going to come in his name. Some are going to say, I am he. We've seen this. We have people in the world today, they call themselves pastors or they have a YouTube channel or something like that, and they say they've come in the name of Christ and all they propagate is false teaching. And we know that's true. We've even had people come and say that they are him. You have groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses that claim that Jesus returned in 1911. Did you know that? And he now lives in a small apartment in New York. Now, they won't tell you. When they knock on your door, they're never going to tell you that. Right? You have, to, you have to go much deeper in their organization to hear that lie. But it's still a lie. There's even a section in, I believe it's in Matthew's Gospel, but if they tell you I'm in an inner room, don't believe them. Ah! Why do you think he said it? Because he knew people would try. Or you have people preaching false versions of Jesus Christ. Many cults teach false versions of Jesus Christ. And even today, many churches that might be considered mainline churches preach a false version of Jesus because they preach a Jesus that is all love and no holiness. All love and no righteousness. All love and no justice. Is he all love? Absolutely. Does he love us to the point that he would die on the cross for our sins? We know that he does. Does he love us no matter how stupid we get? Absolutely, he does. Will he judge those that reject him? Yes, he will. People don't like that side of it. They don't like that Jesus. Does he require us to take up our cross daily and follow him, which is to surrender our will to his and be obedient to his word? Yes, he does. He doesn't look at us and go, yeah, I'll save you. Just do whatever you want. He doesn't say that. Does he require us to be holy? Yes, he does. Now, he provides for us to do that. We don't do it on our own. Praise God, because we would all, we fail miserably with his help. We would be much worse without it. But the point is, people like all these various versions of Jesus, there's only one that's true. And he gave it to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Really, he gave it to us from Genesis to Revelation, but very specifically in the four Gospels. So don't let anybody deceive you. And when you hear about all this stuff going on in the world, right? Do we hear of wars and rumors of wars? Earthquakes, famines, pestilence, over and over and over again. And Jesus says, yes, this is a sign, but it's just the beginning. <laughs> it's just the beginning, folks. Now, well, I'll get there. Verse 9. But watch out for yourselves. 
Gentiles, for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So this is number three for us. Don't be surprised and don't give up. So first, he warns us of coming persecution. Second, he encourages us to endure. Now, he makes a comment about the gospel being preached to all nations. And it's a really good question because I've heard some people take this and they literally will teach that Jesus will not return until everybody is saved. That is nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. In fact, the opposite is taught in Scripture, that he will return and there will be people who aren't saved and they will, be, they will face the tribulation. Um, The second one is, is that every person must on earth must hear the gospel before he returns. That is inaccurate as well. There will come a time when every person on earth will hear the gospel. It's in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. But at this point, the gospel has been preached on every inhabited continent on earth. Did you know that? Now, does that mean every person on earth has heard it? Absolutely not. Does that mean every person on earth is saved? No, that's why we're here. We still have a mission. We are still to share the gospel. But the idea that Jesus will not return until every individual has heard the gospel is not in Scripture. And ultimately, the gospel will be preached to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Peter warned us the same thing that Jesus is warning us. Don't be surprised. Literally, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 14 through 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Our culture and many churches today will tell you a lie that we should never suffer anything bad, that everything in our lives, we should be happy. We should be flowing along, just enjoying life. Why would we believe that when the Bible has clearly told us it's not true? Jesus told us when, right? Not if when they arrest you and deliver you up or they will deliver you up and you will be beaten why would it surprise us if it happens it shouldn't now in our country most of us have never been physically beaten for our faith anybody right but it happens around the world it's happening right now somewhere in the world people being beaten killed imprisoned for their faith it looks different in our country doesn't it here we get called names. Here we get shunned, maybe by family. I, I had uh, I've never told this part of the story, but my dad wouldn't talk to me for 10 years after I got saved. 
Now, I didn't get along with my dad, so it didn't hurt my feelings all that much. But still, he didn't talk to me for 10 years after I got saved. And we see it all the time. I've counseled people. I've counseled people, especially when they come from a family that's religious. I've counseled people who have come to me and said, well, my family's Catholic, and I've become a Christian. I've accepted Christ as Savior, and, and now I won't go to confession, and I won't, I won't pray to Mary, and, and oh, they won't talk to me anymore. That's how we see it in our world. A lot of other ways as well. I've been yelled at for being a Christian. I've been cussed out by family members. I know I've shared that with you before. It happens. It looks different here. It doesn't change it, that we shouldn't be surprised by it. Instead, we should rejoice that we share in Christ's suffering. And if we're insulted for the name of Christ, we are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon us. But that's just so odd to our ears, isn't it? It's odd in our culture. Do we rejoice when people call us names? Do we rejoice when people put us down, tear us apart, lie about us, whatever it might be? No, we very rarely do that. But that's because we have a perspective that's more in line with our culture than in line with God's word. And that's not meant as an insult to any of you because it's true for me as well. It's true for me as well. But we have the option to go, well, thank you, Lord, that for whatever reason, these people came after me, not because I did something wrong, but because I'm following you. At the same time, we're not to be surprised. We're never getting through chapter 13 today. Um, so we'll get to chapter 8 next. Who knows? Um, we should not be surprised when difficulty happens. And at the same time, we need to endure. Galatians 6, 9 and 10 is one of my favorite verses. It says, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So on one hand, this scripture is encouraging us to not grow weary, right? To continue doing good to everybody and especially those who are part of the family of God. But this phrase... For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. That adds to it that we will do good and we will not see immediate fruit. And that's hard. Because maybe you do good for a year, two years, three years, five years, ten years. Think about maybe somebody you've been sharing the gospel with for as long as you've been a Christian and they refuse to come to Christ. But there, you continue praying for them. You continue loving them. When opportunity comes, you continue sharing the gospel. And one day, whether that person comes to Christ or not, hopefully they do, but one day you will reap the fruit of your labor. And whether that's reward in heaven or maybe seeing that person come to Jesus Christ, however it works, you will see one day he promises us that. This has been a verse that I've held very dear in my heart for the three and a half years I've been here as your pastor. There was a time when I would look out on three or four faces in this room. And now there's, there's a few more. And that's not me. 
I'm not taking credit for it. I'm not saying I did anything. It's all God. He did it. He gets all the glory. But it would have been really easy to give up in the first six months or year. There's been a few lean times. There's been some difficulty. Many of you know about that. It would be real easy to give up. But I refuse. Because the Bible says, let us not grow weary while doing good. Because God has told us that he will be with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he's for us. And third, I hate to lose. I hate to lose. And I've already won. So I'm going to stick it out and watch God do something great. So don't be surprised don't grow weary. And this is one of the, we're never going to get anywhere. Uh, this is one of the reasons that the body of Christ is so beautiful. We talked about this a week or two ago when Jesus, in Luke 8, you know, his mother and brothers were outside the room and somebody said, oh, your mother and brothers are outside. And he looked around and he said, those who hear the word of God and do it, they are my mother and brothers. We are a family as followers of Christ. If you want to know the easiest way to grow weary and give up, try to do it by yourself. That is the easiest way to grow weary and give up. But when you're walking with people and they're walking with you, and when you suffer, I suffer, and when I suffer, you suffer. When you rejoice, I rejoice, and when I rejoice, you rejoice, because we are in this together. Right? It was a big thing during COVID. All in this together. Now go to your homes and don't talk to anybody. Right? Not great logic. But we truly are. And I've said this so many times. When does Satan come after us? Does he come after us right now? When you're in the middle of the body and we're in the word and we're worshiping and we know the presence of God is working among us. Is, is he? No. But he's waiting right there. He's waiting till you're outside. He's waiting till tomorrow when you go to work alone. He's waiting until tonight when you're laying in bed, looking up at the ceiling, and all the thoughts are just spinning and spinning and spinning and won't stop. That's what he's waiting for. Because he knows here we're strong together. Strong in the power of God's Spirit working in us. Strong because the Word of God is being proclaimed. Strong because we are together. And so he waits until we're alone. He's not stupid. Not even a little. Verse 14. And you will be hated by all. I already read that. Verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time. And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened those days. Now, 
I'm going to give you a, I want to give you a little bit of comfort. I remember reading this as a young Christian before we had kids. And then even reading it when our kids were small. And I'm like, well, what, what if this happens while, while Leah's still nursing the kids? Are, are we going to be in trouble? What if this happens in the wintertime? Are we going to be in trouble? I was genuinely worried about it. And then somebody taught me what this really meant. Right? And, and actually, the, the meaning is quite clear. Because what he's talking about is the abomination of desolation that takes place during the tribulation, at which time we will, by God's grace, be gone. Now, I realize I've made a mistake, and this is why we're not going to finish 13 today. I should have put a little bit in here about the rapture, because it's so fun to talk about. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about this prophecy from Daniel 9, and then I'm going to be done, and we'll come back next week. How many of you believe me? I got one hand. Woohoo! <laughs> right, so we're just going to talk about the prophecy in Daniel 9 for a little bit. And next week, we'll get into all of this, and we'll talk about the, the, the rapture. Um, and, but for now, the prophecy being referred to in Daniel 9. So initially, what I wrote here for point number four is do not ignore prophecy. The prophecy being referred to here is in Daniel 9. So while I talk for the next couple minutes, please turn to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, if you hit Isaiah, turn right. If you hit Ezekiel, keep turning right. Um, if you hit Hosea or any of the minor prophets, turn left. Daniel's the last major prophet. Um, and so what's being spoken of here is what we call the abomination of desolation, which spoken of by Daniel the prophet. When you see that, run. That's what Jesus says. Now, that will not take place until three and a half years into the tribulation. But Daniel gives us what I believe to be the most important prophecy in all of Scripture. Here in Daniel chapter 9, I'm going to see if I can explain it in less than 10 minutes. Daniel chapter 9. Now the first 23 verses, or the first 21, 19 verses, sorry, the first 19 verses uh, is a prayer that Daniel makes. Now the prayer that Daniel makes in the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9 is based on Daniel reading the book of Jeremiah, which is just astounding to me. You can see that in verse 2. I understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. So Daniel's reading Jeremiah. We have the book he was reading. He realized in the book of Jeremiah that God said that they would be in Babylon for 70 years. And Daniel sat down, right? He took out his iPhone and he flipped through the calendar and went, hey, it's been almost 70 years. Now, most scholars think Daniel was taken to Babylon right at the beginning of the captivity. So he lived his whole life there, most of it. And he was probably a teenager, 13, 14, 15. So 70 years later, Daniel's now in his mid-80s. And he reads the book of Jeremiah, and he goes, Time's up! Oh, Lord! I can see in your word that time's up! And he begins this beautiful prayer. And in verse 20 through 23, we have this neat explanation of... Uh, a little bit of spiritual warfare, but we're not going to get into that. And then Gabriel. And when does Gabriel show up prophetically? To talk about Jesus. He shows up and gives this prophecy. 
And this entire prophecy is all about Jesus Christ. Verse 24 of Daniel 9. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Right? To do this. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. There are six things that will happen. Three of them have already happened. Three of them are remaining. The three that have happened to make an end, or sorry, to finish transgression. How was that finished? When Jesus died on the cross. To make an end of sin. How was that finished? When Jesus rose from the grave. To make reconciliation for iniquity. How was that fulfilled? The preaching of the gospel and people receiving Christ as Savior. Those three things have been and are continuing to be fulfilled, especially the reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness, has that happened yet? No. That will not happen until the millennial reign of Christ. To seal up vision and prophecy, has prophecy stopped being fulfilled from Scripture? No. Prophecy is still being fulfilled in Scripture. So that part isn't done yet. And to anoint the most holy. That speaks of the rule and reign of God over the world. First in Christ during the millennial reign, and then over the new heavens and the new earth. Right? So three fulfilled, three yet to be fulfilled. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, the, the Hebrew word or the Hebrew phrase is actually Mashiach Nagid, Pardon, <clears throat> Mashiach Nagid, and it literally means Messiah the King. Prince is a bad translation. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until... The end of the war, desolations are determined. So much good stuff. The going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Wouldn't it be helpful if we knew when that happened? We do. It's in the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, oh sorry, uh, uh, um, yeah, the book of Nehemiah, sorry. In the book of Ezra, they go back and rebuild the temple. In the book of Nehemiah, he goes back and restores the walls of Jerusalem. This is the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, it's beautiful, and I, it's going to take a while, but we know the date. March 14th, 445 B.C. You go back, the date is given to us in Nehemiah, when the command was given, when you take the Hebrew calendar and you put it in the Gregorian calendar, which is what we use, March 14th, 445 B.C. That's when the command was given, that's when Nehemiah put together a bunch of people, went back to Jerusalem, and rebuilt it, or began the rebuilding process. Right? From the time of that command until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now remember, 70 weeks are determined for your people. But there will be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. These weeks are years. Or sorry, periods of seven years. Periods of seven years. Um, what's seven times 69? 483. 483 years. I know, it's about to get real fun. 
Because from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, March 14th, 445 BC, you count ahead 69 seven-year periods, take into account that they used a 360-day calendar. Whenever we use prophetic calendars, we always go with 360 days because that's what the Jewish people used. 173,880 days. Now, I challenge you to do this. Go back, get your calendar, March 14, 445 BC, and start counting forward 173,880 days. Want to know what date it lands on? April 10th, 32 AD. What happened on April 10th, 32 AD? Jesus sent his disciples and said, go get a colt and bring it to me. And they threw their clothes on the colt and they threw their palm branches on the road and Jesus got on that donkey, a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, presenting himself to Jerusalem as their Messiah. People crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A prophecy from Psalm 118, speaking of the Messiah, the one who came to save us. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Mashiach Nagid, 483 years, 173,880 days, the street shall be built again the wall, even in troublesome times. You can read about all that in the book of Nehemiah. Now what happens at the end of the 62 weeks? Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. The end of it will be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. April 10, 32 AD is what we call Palm Sunday. Four days later, Thursday, April 14, 32 AD, was the day our Savior was crucified. And people go, oh, we don't really know when he was crucified. Yes, we do. Oh, we don't, we don't, you know, everybody argues. Oh, he wasn't, he was born in 4 BC. No, he wasn't. Our calendars changed with his birth. That's the day he died. Three days later, beautiful Sunday morning, Jesus rose again. What happened? We just talked about it a little bit ago. 38 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were scattered until 1948. Israel being back in the land means there is one prophetic event waiting to happen before the beginning of the tribulation. Just one. Guesses? It's the rapture of the church. We'll talk about it next week. Ooh, spoiler alert. And cliffhanger all at the same time. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. 69 weeks have been fulfilled. What? 69 weeks have been fulfilled. At Jesus' resurrection, 69 weeks had been fulfilled.
There is the 70th week. We call it the 70th week of Daniel. A seven-year period of time that has not happened yet. There is a break in the prophecy. That 70th week, that seven-year period of time that will lead to the consummation in verse 27, the end of everything, the completion of everything, that seven-year period is the tribulation. What sparks the tribulation is a trumpet sound and us going home. That hasn't happened yet. We could hope, right? Or it did happen and we're all going to hell. No, it just hasn't happened yet. Now, if there's ever a day and I disappear and you're still here, something has gone terribly wrong. Or vice versa. You all leave and I'm still standing here, something's gone terribly wrong. But that's what we're waiting on. We'll talk about that next week. In the middle of that seven-year period of time, Three and a half years in. You see this throughout the book of Revelation. We see it here. We see Jesus speaking of it in uh, uh, where we were just at in Mark 13. It says, He will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the abominations he will make desolate. Three, three and a half years into the tribulation, the Antichrist will go into the temple of God, which has been rebuilt, and he will declare to the world that he is God. Now, the first three and a half years of the tribulation are bad. After the Antichrist declares himself God, the second three and a half years, which is called the Great Tribulation, things get a lot worse. And you can read about what this looks like in Revelation chapter 13. And that's what will happen. Those seven years, at the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back, he sets up a millennial reign, he rules and reigns for a thousand years, we get to come with him on white horses, Revelation 19, one of the best chapters in all of scripture, so cool, after the thousand, Satan is bound, after the thousand years, Satan is let loose to attempt one more rebellion, and there's a lot of good reasons for that that I'm not going to get into right now. At the end, he's defeated, thrown into the lake of fire the great white throne judgment for all who have rejected Christ. Then God destroys the heaven and the earth, and he makes a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem in which righteousness dwells. Oh, I can't wait. I love you all. I hope to see you tomorrow or Wednesday or next week. And if we hear the trumpet sound and instead we bow before the throne of God together in 30 seconds, that's awesome too. Can't wait. The point don't ignore prophecy. That prophecy, people hate it. Non believers hate the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 because the accuracy of it cannot be discounted. So much so that skeptics say Daniel was written after Jesus was born. That's the only way that he could have done that. But Daniel was included in the Septuagint version of the Bible, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was completed in 270 B.C., 270 years before Jesus was born. That prophecy was there. Daniel, by God's grace, revealed to him by Gabriel, predicted the coming of the Messiah, his death, and then the tribulation. 
the only thing that hasn't happened in that prophecy yet, besides bringing in everlasting righteousness, is the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. So the big question is, is that what's going on in Israel right now? No. Trust me. No. When we talk about the rapture next week, I'll make that a little more clear. If you can't wait that long, go to my YouTube page, uh, Beware the Caffeinated Pastor, and look up my study on the rapture. Uh, it's there. Um, but if you, want, if you go, oh, you like the cliffhanger and you want to wait till next week, awesome. So here's the reality. Our world is in chaos. Yes, that is a sign of the end times. We have been told repeatedly that Jesus is coming back and that we should live in expectation for his return which we should. And there's two things that go into living in expectation of his return. First is knowing Christ as Savior. If you don't know Jesus, you're not waiting for his return. You don't really care, probably. And if you don't know Jesus, when he comes back, we'll miss it. Or you'll miss it. I'm not going to miss it. I know Christ as Savior. So that's number one. What's the second part? We are to be about our Father's business until he comes back. Because, my dear brothers and sisters, there are billions of people who don't know him. And if the rapture happened right now, they would go through the tribulation. And if they didn't repent and believe while going through the tribulation, they would be lost. And even if we make it a little more personal, there are people in our lives, each of our lives right now, that may die before that ever takes place. And if they don't know Christ, all that's waiting is condemnation. And we have the answer. We have the answer. Jesus died and rose again so that we could be saved. And we are asked by God to tell the world around us of that love. I have no conclusion because I'm only halfway done with the message. Let's pray. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for your great and amazing grace. I thank you, God, for how good you are. And I thank you that your word gives us so much. There's a lot of things we don't know, Father, and with the things we don't know, we trust you. But you've given us a lot that we can know. And for that, I am very grateful. I pray, Lord, that any understanding that we have gained today would be by your Holy Spirit. I pray that your truth of your word would anchor us so that we can't be deceived. And I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I pray for your peace in our hearts as we trust you through your Son and the power of your Spirit for everything that's yet to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.